If you could meet the most powerful man on earth, would you? Vodi Bauckham, who's currently Dean of the African Christian University, met George W. Bush when he was Governor of Texas. Uh, Bush would of course go on to be uh, the 43rd President of the USA. Uh, and Bauckham says that when people see the photo of the two of them together, they're fascinated. It doesn't matter what shade of the political spectrum uh, people are on, uh, even if they they hated Bush uh, as president, they they are intrigued and they want to find out all all about it. As they see this man that they know standing beside uh, the man who was once the most powerful man in the world. And in the section of Genesis that we're looking at this evening, Jacob does the equivalent in his day as he stands beside Pharaoh. And that's one of two memorable meetings that we're going to look at this evening. But before we get there, we're going to look at another encounter that Jacob has. And that's actually an encounter that meant far more to Jacob than standing beside the most powerful man on earth. Unlike the encounter that Jacob has with Pharaoh, the other meeting is with someone he once knew well, but who he hasn't seen for over two decades, and who he in fact thought was dead. And of course it's Jacob's reunion with his beloved son Joseph. On a a purely human level, it's a story that can't fail to touch our hearts. But as we'll hopefully see tonight, there are hints here of an even greater reunion. So we we have two headings tonight as we look at these two encounters. And firstly, as we think of Jacob's meeting with Joseph, we see God's care for his elderly saints. God's care for his elderly saints. Ever since Jacob had heard that, that Joseph was still alive... His one desire had been to see him. That is, once he comes to realise that his other sons were actually telling the truth. His heart had become numb within him at the end of chapter 45 and he didn't believe them. For 20 years he had believed their story that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And he'd never really recovered from the grief. But when his sons returned from Egypt that second time and told him the words of Joseph, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him down to Egypt, his spirit revived. And he had said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Since then, Jacob has had those very natural fears about leaving the promised land that we looked at last time. Some of that anxiety, no doubt due to to the big change it was at his time of life. But mostly it would have been anxiety about leaving the land that God had promised to give to his family. But God has encouraged this elderly saint with the command not to fear and the promise that he will be with him. And now, at last, Jacob has come to his final earthly destination. And he's about to see his son again. 
just before we get to the reunion itself, we have the interesting little detail in verse 28 that Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way. And I say it's interesting because it's Judah who he sends. It shows Judah coming to prominence among the brothers. Just as when in Egypt he had been their spokesman. Remember that despite what we might expect, Jesus will be born not from the line of Joseph, but from the line of Judah. And it's Judah who goes ahead of his father. Just pointing us to the significance that Judah and his tribe will have. Uh, And how this would have helped Jacob's anxieties. That even though he was going to a country that he had never been before, someone had gone ahead of him to show him the way. Or, Or we could say to prepare the way for him. And if you're a Christian this evening, it wouldn't be completely unnatural for you to be a bit apprehensive about heaven. It's somewhere you've never been before. It's hard to picture what it's like. But let me remind you tonight that Judah's great descendant, Jesus Christ, has gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you. Jesus said when he was on earth, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so Judah goes to the place that has been, or Jacob rather, goes to the place that has been prepared for him. And Joseph himself comes to to meet him. He gets his chariot ready, or maybe someone does it for him, and and he goes to Jacob. Without Joseph, the, the best of the land of Egypt would mean nothing to Jacob. And without the true and better Joseph, Jesus Christ, heaven itself would feel empty to us. If you can look forward to heaven, but without Jesus being there, without it mattering whether Jesus was there or not, then it's not the the hope for heaven that the Bible talks about. And just as Joseph isn't just going to sit and wait until Jacob comes to him, is there not a sense in Scripture of the Lord coming to meet us? Of him so anticipating our arrival with him. Whether it's the the father running to meet the prodigal. Or 1 Thessalonians 4 of Jesus descending from heaven. And us being caught up with him. And the dead in the Lord. And all meeting in the air. When we get to the father's house. Will there be anyone keener to welcome us in than the son? Our Saviour, the Son of God, is just waiting to welcome us into the Father's house. And here Joseph, the one who sits at the king's right hand, comes to his elderly father to welcome him in to his new country. And then in the rest of verse 29, we have the long-awaited reunion. It's a moment that both of them surely thought would never happen at at certain times at least. Certainly Jacob, 
uh, as far as he's been concerned, this, this will, will never happen again. Joseph uh, has put the pieces together uh, long before this, but, but Jacob, it, it just wasn't an option. And you can just picture the emotion and the tears and all that's involved. Uh, maybe today it would be like uh, someone off fighting in the war and their, their mother hears that, that, that her son has been killed in action and she's just devastated. But then a year or two later he comes home. And that's the sort of scene we have here. And what reunions there will be in heaven of parents and their children, perhaps of parents with children who died in infancy, maybe even in the womb, of spouses, of close friends, of grandparents. But it will be nothing compared to seeing Jesus. And after that long embrace between Jacob and Joseph, there's nothing else that this earth can give Jacob. He says in verse 29, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. They're they're moving words. And they're also words that might remind us of a similar occasion in the New Testament. I talked this morning about holding the the Old Testament and the life of Jesus side by side. And if you do that, you'll see clear prophecies that are fulfilled. But you'll also see bits that aren't clear predictions or prophecies, perhaps. But there are still connections that jump out to us. So do these words here in verse 29 remind you of anything? Or sorry, verse 30. Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. Well, as Derek Kidner says, this is an Old Testament nunc dimittis. And maybe that doesn't shed any more light on it really. But nunc dimittis is just a Latin translation of the first word spoken by Simeon in the New Testament when he sees Jesus being presented at the temple as a baby. If you want to read the story later on, it's in Luke chapter 2. Simeon is a righteous and a devout man, and it's been revealed to him that he won't see death before he's seen the Lord's Christ. And he comes in the spirit to the temple where Joseph and Mary have brought the child, and he takes a baby in his arms and says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Sometimes I get frustrated with cross-references in the Bible. Uh, Those references that you may have that that point you from one verse to other verses that tie in with it. Uh, And I get frustrated because of some of the obvious things that they miss. But they get it right here. Uh, At least the the ones in my Bible. If if you look up the cross-references for Genesis 46-30, it will point you to Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Though frustratingly, if you were just to look at chapter 2 of Luke, it wouldn't point you back here. So, so they get it half right at least. But it is hard to miss the similarities. In both cases, an elderly man says, either let me die or you're letting me die. And they say it in direct response to someone that they've seen. 
And in both cases, they see someone who has more to them than meets the eye. Because what does Simeon see? He sees an ordinary looking baby. No one else in the temple that day would have batted an eyelid. But he sees more than they see because he realises he's seeing the Christ. And in the same way with Joseph, whether Jacob sees more in Joseph than his long lost son, we can't be sure. But there is more to Joseph than meets the eye. Because he's one of the clearest pictures in scripture of what Jesus would be like. Both in his character and in the pattern of his life. And if we have seen Jesus by faith, then this world can give us nothing in comparison with that. You may not have achieved or experienced some of the things that you had hoped to achieve or experience in this life. But if you've seen Jesus, then when your time comes, you will be ready to depart in peace. And you'll be ready for heaven. Because what is the joy of heaven but seeing our Saviour? Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, then face to face. So that's the first memorable meeting of this section. Jacob and Joseph reunited. And it surely points forward to the happy reunions of heaven. And particularly when we see our Saviour face to face. The closing verses of the chapter as well as the first six verses of chapter 47 are taken up with the allotment of the land of Goshen to Jacob's family. Uh, and maybe this just seems a bit of, a bit of admin, uh, but there, there's a bit more to it than that. They, they've come with their animals, they're used to being shepherds, and so they don't want to end up being put in a city. Uh, but there also seems to be a desire that they would be able to maintain a separate existence. Remember how we thought last week about Egypt being a kind of ark for God's people at this stage of redemptive history. Uh, An ark for them, a place of safety, so they wouldn't end up blending in with the Canaanites around them and becoming like them. Well, settling in the land of Goshen in, in their own territory seems to have been a way of keeping separate from the Egyptians, of trying not to assimilate to them. And so these are important discussions and it involves some of Joseph's brothers being introduced to Pharaoh. In verse 2 of chapter 47 you have a delegation of five brothers being presented to Pharaoh. Picture the scene. Joseph, one of the most powerful men on the planet, in all his splendour, Presenting five of his refugee shepherd brothers to the great Egyptian king. Even if we hadn't been told in the last verse of chapter 46 that shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. There would have been plenty of reasons why Joseph might have been ashamed of his brothers. Plenty of reasons why he might have said to his brothers, look, look you go away, you stay away, I'll sort this out with, with Pharaoh and I'll come and tell you what he says. But once again, Joseph points us to Jesus. The one who Hebrews tells us is not ashamed to call us brothers. And the one who will bring us into the very presence of God. 
It's also interesting that despite all the power that Joseph has in Egypt, Pharaoh is the one who allots the land. Matthew Henry points out the connection with Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus says about sitting at his right hand, it is not mine to grant. Uh, And in a sense, by, by taking them to Pharaoh, Joseph is saying the same thing, it is not mine to grant. And so Pharaoh grants the land of Goshen to Jacob's family. And that brings us now to the second memorable meeting of this chapter. Having seen Jacob reunited with Joseph and all that that Joseph has done to prepare a place for him, which is all part of God's care for this elderly saint, we come secondly to look at Jacob's meeting with Pharaoh. And we do so under our second heading, which is Abraham's offspring blessing the nations. Abraham's offspring blessing the nations. How old are you? That's a question some of us maybe get asked more than others. And it's basically the one question that Pharaoh asks Jacob here when the two of them meet for the first and probably the only time. In verse 8 of chapter 47, Pharaoh asks him, How many are the days of the years of your life? Uh, which uh, some of the older Bible versions from William Tyndale onwards paraphrase simply as, How old art thou? Uh, J.P. Struthers had a series in his children's magazine with that title. Each month he would share an anecdote about what a famous person had achieved or done at a particular age. Uh, The series, it was called How Old Art Thou? But does this incident provide us with more than a title to use for a magazine series because you could look at this whole thing as little more than a curiosity Jacob and Pharaoh meet Pharaoh asks an unexpected question Jacob gives an unexpected answer Jacob leaves and that's it even the language of blessing could be interpreted simply as a greeting John Curran, who's normally a pretty reliable Old Testament commentator, says here about the language of blessing. This is nothing more than a salutation on Jacob's part. But is that all that's happening here? Yes, there are places in Scripture where the word bless is translated greet, uh, rightly so, uh, and where there, there doesn't seem to be any more significance to it than if we were to say hello or goodbye. But I don't think this is one of those places. There's a similar encounter you might remember where Jacob's grandfather Abraham meets Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. And in that case, Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. That whole encounter is over in just a few verses as well. We might not think there's much to it either. And yet that incident is picked up on in Hebrews 7 as something very significant. And given that background, I think we should be slow to just skip over this incident. And apart from all that, we should sit up and take notice because of how surprising this is. Jacob and Pharaoh meet. And who would we expect to bless who? Well, surely it's Pharaoh who would be blessing Jacob. If one of us were to meet the queen... 
Who would be the one telling everyone they met about it? Well, it probably wouldn't be the Queen. We would come away in awe that we had met someone so significant, or, or at least most of us would, but she would have forgotten about us in ten minutes. And yet here, rather than the most powerful man in the world blessing Jacob, Jacob blesses the most powerful man in the world. And that in itself tells us something about how God views people, doesn't it? It tells us that what really counts about a person in God's eyes is very different what counts them from what counts in the world's eyes. It tells us that what's happening in the church of Christ, which Jacob represents, is far more significant than what's happening in the corridors of power. And that's helpful to, to keep in mind when we're deciding what to fill our minds with. Alexander the Great was one of the most significant characters in world history. And he, he's referred to in the Bible by, by prophecy in the book of Daniel. But the Bible actually spends far more time talking about less well-known characters such as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who, who most people have never heard of because of what they would do to the church. Uh, the Bible, uh, in, in Daniel chapter 11, there, there is half a verse about Alexander the Great, about what he's going to come, what he's going to do. And there's 15 verses about this uh, guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, because of what he would do to the church. Uh, and it tells us something about God's priorities. When we're watching the news, we shouldn't be thinking that, that what is being talked about here is the most significant thing that is happening in the world. What is the most significant thing happening in the world is what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ and her mission to reach the world for him. And Jacob blessing Pharaoh, it also tells us where true blessing is found. Where true blessing is found. It's not found in the world, but it's found among God's people. And if you find yourself among God's people tonight, well, our God delights to bless people. He wants to do you good. So Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That's surprising. And Pharaoh consents to be blessed. And again, we might ask why. You know, some, some randomer comes in today and starts starts pronouncing a blessing over, over uh, uh, someone in the royal family. They might say, well, well, who do you think they're doing? They might get the, get the security guards in, take this person away. But why is Pharaoh content to play the subordinate role here? Why is he content to have someone he's never met before come in and pronounce these words over him? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons that we see here in the text. And the first is Jacob's age. Jacob's answer to the question of how old he is is 130. It's unusually old for our day. Uh, that would certainly break the, the verified records. Struthers in his magazine talks about a man who, who was 145 years old. Uh, but... but the, they don't count ones that are that are that are are back 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 at that time. They count more recently when they can verify it. Uh, so Jacob would be a world record holder today, unusually old. 
and perhaps unusually old even for Egypt in that day. We read about these great ages of, of some of the, the, the early figures in world history and then of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and, and that may have just been because people lived longer back when, when the world was fresh and new. Uh, but Derek Kidner suggests it was due to God's special providence and others wouldn't have experienced it. And if that is the case, then Jacob could have been by far the oldest person that Pharaoh had ever met. So Pharaoh consents to be blessed by Jacob because of his noteworthy age. A man who's been alive for well over a century. But Pharaoh also consents to be blessed because of Joseph. Notice in verse 7 how it's Joseph that brings Jacob in and stands him before Pharaoh. Just as Jesus will bring us into God's presence. And so Pharaoh consents to be blessed by Jacob for Joseph's sake. Out of recognition that Jacob's son has saved his land from ruin. And maybe, just maybe, Pharaoh consents to be blessed because God has started to work in his life too. But hold that thought for a moment or two as we look at the rest of Jacob's answer. Because he doesn't just give his age as 130 and then stop. He goes on to say in the rest of verse 9. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. An unexpected question from Pharaoh and an unexpected answer from Jacob. So are these just the words of a jaded and bitter old man? Would Jacob have given a different answer perhaps after he'd been reunited with Joseph for a few years? Well certainly what he says in the rest of the book that we'll see over the next few weeks is more positive. But why not hear it? Is it just that he's looking back on his life at this stage before this great turning point where he's been reunited with Joseph? Well, something that, that almost all commentators agree on is that when it comes to his age, Jacob is speaking in terms of comparison. Because how can his 130 years be considered few unless they're compared to the 175 years Abraham lived or the 180 years Isaac lived? In fact, Jacob says himself, he has not attained to the days of the years of the life of his father. So he is comparing himself to them. And if he's saying that his life has been short compared to theirs, he may well be saying that, that his life has been evil or calamitous compared to theirs. Or he may just be saying honestly that his life has been a struggle. Because when we look at Jacob's life, there has been a lot of heartache. Some brought on himself, yes, but a lot brought on him by others. Jacob is a sinner, but he's also been sinned against. He's deceived his brother Esau, uh, deceived his father, had to flee for his life to his uncle Laban. He's been tricked into marrying the wrong sister. He's ended up with two wives and the heartache that brought. He's been cheated by Laban, fled from him, then been in fear of his life from Esau again. His children haven't turned out too well. Uh, some of his sons committing murder in cold blood to arrange, 
to avenge the rape of their sister. And then he spent the last 20 years of his life mourning his favourite son. And what he says to Pharaoh is, is just an honest reflection of that. As Job put it in chapter 14, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Few of days and full of trouble. What's that for a, for a gravestone inscription? And yet Jacob's words aren't faithless words. There is faith here from Jacob. Do you notice how he changes Pharaoh's question? Uh, Pharaoh asks him, verse 8, How many are the days of the years of your, your life? But Jacob replies, The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. And he goes on to talk about his fathers as being sojourners as well. Now, now you might not have used uh, the word sojourn in conversation in the last week. Uh, but sojourn just means staying somewhere temporarily. If you sojourn somewhere, it's not your permanent home. And when Jacob talks about sojourning, he's saying that this earth isn't his true home. Hebrews 11, talking about these patriarchs, says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing before Pharaoh. He, he's acknowledging that he is a stranger and an exile on the earth. Because he has a better country, as Hebrews goes on to say, a heavenly one. And if you're a pilgrim, what ultimately matters isn't the journey, but the destination. And it's the same for us. What ultimately matters isn't the journey, but the destination. The journey may not have been carried out in ideal conditions, but the hardships will soon be forgotten. If you're travelling in a storm and the roads were closed, but you find a cheap B&B to stay in, the colour of the room or the cramped conditions wouldn't really matter because you can put up with anything for a night or two. And the Apostle Paul says that compared to the glory of our destination, our troubles here and now are light and momentary. If this was our final destination, the trials that we face here and now would bother us a lot more and, and we would be consumed with them because we wouldn't have anything else to think about. But this world isn't our home. We're just passing through so Jacob's apparently despairing answer to Pharaoh is actually a lot more faith-filled than it seems at first glance. He realised he was a sojourner. And do we? Do we? Because if not, we'll get things out of perspective if we try and treat this world as our final destination. But then just in closing tonight, I said earlier that perhaps Pharaoh consented to be blessed because God had been at work in his life. We thought a month or two ago about the likelihood that Joseph's wife, who was the daughter of an Egyptian priest, may have been converted through Joseph's influence before they get married. And why not Pharaoh himself? God had promised Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
And how do we interpret that promise? Uh, well, we interpret it in terms of salvation. And here in this chapter, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is blessed by Abraham's grandson. The promised blessing is already spreading to the nations of the world. What we can say for sure is that Pharaoh has had the blessing of knowing God's people. But he may well also have had the amazing blessing of coming to know God himself. And so there we have two memorable encounters. Two memorable meetings. None of us may ever meet the most powerful man in the world. But the one question that really matters is whether we've met Jesus or not. And if so, then no matter how difficult the days of our sojourning may be, we can have confidence that the second we arrive in his presence, we'll know that it has all been worth it. Amen. Let's sing a psalm as we close that talks about those from Egypt coming to know the Lord. Psalm 87. Psalm 87, page 198. Psalm 87, page 198, and the tune is St. Anne, number 138. Uh, Particularly verse 2. Things glorious are said of you, O city of our God, all Egypt name and Babylon as knowing me, the Lord. This is a psalm that describes unexpected conversions, just like with Saul, the persecutor, becoming the Apostle Paul. Uh, Those unexpected conversions included people from Egypt. And and maybe, maybe it included a pharaoh or two. So Psalm 87, tune 138, will stand and sing praise.